Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. I'm reading this morning for our sermon text, reading from the book of Isaiah. I'm just going to read a couple scriptures. Uh, This is the prophecy that I'll refer to in the book of Matthew here in a moment. But Isaiah 7 and verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, and this is, this is page 572 in your pew Bibles. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. This was seven to eight hundred years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And then for our sermon text this morning, I'm reading from Matthew chapter 1, this is the way the New Testament opens after 17 verses of so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. This is where the, the New Testament starts. Verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be child with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And this is what we read a moment ago in Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us. That is the sermon I want to bring this morning. And and think about in the book of Matthew, what is going on here. We tend to kind of make this a hallmark moment with a nice porcelain nativity scene and all of this. What is going on here is revolutionary. Jesus comes into the earth as the Son of God as the one who is going to inaugurate, who is going to start the kingdom of God on this earth. And it happens in in ways that we probably wouldn't have done. We probably wouldn't have, have planned the story out this way. You have to picture what's going on. Mary and Joseph are together. They are a couple. And Mary turns up pregnant. Joseph has not been to Mary. And Mary goes to Joseph and says, don't worry about it. I haven't actually been with anybody. It's actually God's child. I mean, that's what's going on. This is the story. Uh, And how would would most men feel? How would most people feel if this happened? 
it, it, it's the child of the Holy Spirit. Well, woman, could you not come up with a better explanation than that? That's kind of far-reaching. Uh, until an angel appears to Joseph and confirms and says, yes, Joseph, this is actually uh, what is going on. And that's what we're reading here in Matthew 1.18. Uh, Joseph is a just man and says he's unwilling to put her to shame. He doesn't want to embarrass her, so he's going to just make her go away. He's going to divorce her quietly. And it takes an angel coming to Joseph to straighten things out. That is the context of the story. This is how the story starts. Mary the mother of Jesus. God is the father of Jesus. We're not afraid to use that language. It's scriptural language. And so this morning for a few moments, I want to talk about what Christmas really means. It means God is with us. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And we thank you for it this morning. We ask you that you would anoint this time together. Your word is already anointed, but that you would anoint this time together, Lord, and transform us and bring revelation and understanding to our hearts, Lord, and make us more into your image that we may glorify you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So many of you would be familiar with the story from uh, even high school. I learned about him in high school. The story of Julius Caesar. We know a lot about him from Shakespeare. Shakespeare has a, a play that uh, really centers around Julius Caesar. But Julius Caesar was a real historic person, and he lived and died a few decades before the birth of Jesus Christ. S Julius Caesar was the last sole dictator of the Roman Republic before the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire. There was a transition there uh, a few decades before Jesus, and it all happens around this person named Julius Caesar. Caesar, as the dictator, uh, he is assassinated by several Roman senators about 40 years before the birth of Christ. Julius Caesar had a nephew, and his nephew's name was Octavian. And in the process of all this turmoil, the Republic, the Roman Republic, was split between three men. Two of those men were Octavian, this is Julius Caesar's nephew, Octavian and a guy named Mark Antony. And these three men achieved the rule of the Republic by going to war against the senators that killed Julius Caesar. And together, as this triumphant, these three guys together, they rule kind of co-equal uh, rulers of the Roman Republic until they couldn't get along. And then they went to war. And in the process of this, Mark Antony married Octavian's sister, and that kind of eased it for a while. Uh, but then Octavian, he goes and, or, or um, Mark Antony goes on and he carries on this love affair with Cleopatra from Egypt. Again, we've heard in culture all these songs written about Cleopatra and she's in popular culture. I think there was a movie years ago with Elizabeth Taylor uh, playing her in a movie. And so this kind of comes into modern culture. There's an interest of this. Uh, but the Roman Senate declares Mark Antony a traitor for marrying this Egyptian queen, and so Octavian goes to war against his brother-in-law, and where Antony flees to Egypt, he and Cleopatra, they commit suicide. And now Octavian is the last man standing, 
And Rome is tired of war and they are more than happy to crown him emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, and this is where his title comes into play. And his title actually has the words in it, uh, the divine son of God. Uh, he is deified. And this is the heyday of the Roman Empire. It is Octavian Augustus, or as Luke chapter 2 refers to him, Augustus. This man is in the Bible. This man is who is ruling, ruling the Roman Empire uh, during the time of Jesus. Now I pointed all of that and gave this little history lesson for two reasons. One is that his name meant the Son of God, the Divine Son. While the real Son of God was being born in very ordinary circumstances in a manger, while the ruler of the world carried the title Divine Son, and that ruler of the world was in fact a poser, he was fake, he was an imposter, at least in terms of his divine title. And the second reason I point all this out is because I want you to see that the birth of Jesus Christ is a historic reality. I, I think at times we read these stories and we don't always place them in their context of history, but they really did happen. Uh, there was a time 2,000 years ago where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world. It was in the midst of all of this chaos around the world where uh, so much had happened in the Roman Empire and so much war. And yet in this setting, in, a, in an area of Palestine that is people who are... Jewish by religion and they're speaking Greek by culture and they're being ruled by Rome and all of this mass chaos of culture is the time and place that God chose to introduce Jesus Christ into the world. I think that as the people of God sometimes we get frustrated by the culture around us, the political landscape, all the things that are going on. And I I encourage us to know that this has always been the case with the people of God. The people of God have always dealt with the, the cultural realities, the political realities of the world. And even the story of the birth of Jesus was shaped by current political events. Because God's redemptive purposes have always and will always unfold in the context of our culture. We live out our faith in real life among jobs, among people who don't believe like us. Our faith is lived out through culture. And this 2,000 year ago event, this was not a postcard hallmark moment. This was a very ordinary moment on the surface. It was a young, probably teenage girl having a baby in a very modest scenario. No one around Mary and Joseph knew the significance of the birth of Jesus unless it was pointed out by supernatural events, unless there were the heavens opened up and angels sing and, and talk to shepherds. Unless all of this happens, otherwise people don't notice. It's just another woman having a baby, just like it happens on any other day. And between the time of the birth of Jesus until the time of when he comes on the scene in his ministry around 30 years old, we only have one glimpse into his life, and that's when he's a 12-year-old boy. In Luke chapter 2, verse 46, and this is the continuation of what I read earlier, after three days they found him in the temple. So Jesus is lost. Jesus, Mary and Joseph go down the caravan. They're, they're leaving Jerusalem and it takes them about a day to realize that Jesus isn't with the group. So they have to turn around, make the day's journey back. So Jesus has been missing for three days. And in Luke 2, 46, 
After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the, the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in the favor with God and man. The question has been often asked, what did Jesus do from the time he was born until the time that he came on the scene of his ministry? What happened in those 30 years? What we know happened is that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and man. Even Jesus Christ himself had to go through the process of growing because he was man. I, I think often we are very rich in the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ, but we're really anemic in the idea that he was human. But he was human. Uh, he wasn't like a human. He was fully man. He was God and he was man. And even Jesus had to follow the process of maturing as a man and as a minister of his own gospel message. And all of this was done in a very ordinary setting. But while he's doing this, while he's increasing in wisdom and in favor, he is preparing for his purpose. And that is that he is to be a light that penetrates the darkness in this world. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, this is, this is a Christmas verse, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is speaking of Jesus. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light of the world today. It is the, he is the only hope. Not organized religion, not denominationalism, not any specific church. It is Jesus Christ, the person of God Himself, that is the hope and the light of the world. Jesus would cry out, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The enemy, Satan, hated the light. He tried to extinguish the light on Calvary. King Herod, so you have Augustus who's ruler of the entire Roman Empire, but King Herod, who is the king at that time in, in Judah, he had all the male children, two years and younger, killed, trying to extinguish the light of the world. There was mass fatality among women who lost their children they're, they're male baby boys who were two years and under because Herod catches wind that this Messiah, this Christ child has come. who's going to take over his throne. He says, oh, I'll fix that. I'll just go in and we'll just wipe out all the, all the boys in, in that part of the country. And, and this, is like, this is all chain reactions of what's happening because Christ has come. The, the conception of Jesus was miraculous. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she conceived. It was a once-in-a-lifetime supernatural event where the Holy Spirit comes over. That, that word 
overshadow is only used twice in the New Testament. The other time that word is used, overshadow, is in the book of Acts where Peter is walking down the street and it said that people would try to get in his shadow so that even the, the shadow of Peter would heal people. That that was the kind of anointing that Peter carried on. And so it's just this, it's this manifest presence of God that is in the earth. And the other time that's used is here. The Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and she becomes pregnant. The scripture refers to Mary as the mother of Jesus, but it never refers to Joseph as the father because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if as the Son, He is fully 100% God Himself, the divinity and the humanity of Christ are intertwined. He is the God-man and He dwelt among us for 33 years. God was with us in the flesh. If we lived 2,000 years ago, we could say that God is with us through the man Christ Jesus. We could walk up and shake His hand and see Him and know Him personally. The Apostle Paul writes about Jesus, "...to them who God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." God is with us today because Jesus Christ is in us through the power of His Holy Spirit, the hope of glory. I, I couldn't make it through or I don't want to try to know what it would be like to make it through life. Life's already hard enough without knowing that God would not be with us. Life is already hard enough without God, but to have God with us is, makes all the difference. To have Christ inside of us through the power of His Holy Spirit in a midst of a world that is saturated in chaos and confusion and uncertainty. I am thankful this morning that God is with us through the power of His Holy Spirit. Jesus did not come to planet earth to take a vacation. He didn't treat this like a hotel. He did come to stay among us forever. And after the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, the last words that Matthew records of Jesus teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And after Christ ascends into the sky, that the people watch Him in the beginning of the book of Acts, they watch Him ascend, and His followers go back to Jerusalem for a prayer meeting. And Jesus had already promised in John 14, He said, I'm going to send my comforter, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, after I go, you're going to have my spirit. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And there suddenly came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. This was the Christ in you that Paul is talking about. The Holy Spirit. It is Christ in you. I, I think it's very encouraging to people. To understand that biblically, in the New Testament, the number one way that the Bible identifies believers, follow, followers of Christ, it doesn't call them Christians, that's not the number one way. It is the way that Paul refers over a hundred times in the New Testament. He says, you are in Christ or in Him. We are in Christ. Now, being part of a Spirit-filled tradition, 
we talk about Christ being in us. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, so the person of Jesus Christ lives and dwells inside of us. That is a very, uh, is a very Pentecostal slash charismatic, and I'm using that word charismatic not in the term that a lot of times it gets applied to certain segments of Pentecostalism. I'm using charismatic in the term, uh, the, the true sense of the word. Uh, so anybody who would be uh, consider themselves spirit-filled, believe in the gifts of the spirit, tongues, all of that, they would be charismatic. Uh, so, you, you know, you're charismatic if you do that. Now, we've taken that term and applied it to segments of Pentecostalism to where it's become a derogatory term, but the true meaning of the word charismatic just has to do with the gifts of the spirit. So in the sense of a Pentecostal slash charismatic setting, we have the Spirit of Christ inside of us. We believe that we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the way that Paul frames what it means to be a believer isn't just that the Spirit of God is in us, it's that we abide in Christ. That's the difference. It's not just that Christ abides in you, and He does, but it's that we abide in Christ. So Jesus talks about this and says, if I abide in you and you abide in me, it's this back and forth relationship. He is in us through the power of His Holy Spirit. We are buried with Christ in baptism. We identify with Christ in baptism. This is a really significant part of baptism that often gets overlooked, is what happens when you are baptized. There's a lot of things that happen, but one of them is that you are buried with Christ. You are in Him through baptism. So He is in us. We are in Him. If I abide in you and you abide in me, it's this, it's this back and forth relationship. We are in union with Christ. This, this idea of being one with Jesus Christ. Not just as a body of believers, but individually being one with Jesus Christ. That means that once you are one with Jesus Christ, you are never, ever, ever going to be separated from God. It's not possible. I'm not saying you can't walk away and backslide. That's not, I'm saying for the believer that's walking with God, there is nothing that's going to separate you from His love. Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In other words, when you die. If, if I die, and Paul said, it's better for me if I die. He goes, I'm staying here. I, I need to stay here for you. This is Paul speaking. He said, I'm here for your purpose, because if it's up to me, I'm out of here. Because if I get to die, I get to be with the Lord. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. People, there's always these debates about what happens to a Christian when they die. Well, I don't know exactly what happens other than you're going to be with the Lord. Like that's the, that's the promise, is you are going to be in His presence. Now, go to the book of 2 Thessalonians, where Paul talks about the Lord returning, the return, the, the second coming, the advent of Jesus Christ, that Christ will return someday in the future. Uh, the image here that Paul uses, the word rapture is not in the Bible, but we'll talk about the rapture and say, well, the, the believers will be caught up in the air to meet Christ. The idea that believers will be caught up with Him and then like go away somewhere else, you don't have text for that. What you do have text for is that we can go up and meet Him, and the language there is that we're going to usher Him back, like Christ is going to return to this earth. It's what we call the rapture, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says. When he returns, he says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's the same language that he uses to say, when you die, 
You're going to be in the presence of God. You're going to be with the Lord. And when He returns the second time, you're going to be with the Lord. So whether I live until Christ returns or whether I die, the end result is the same. I get to be with Jesus. For the believer, there is no such thing as death. Death does not exist. We will lay down this body, yes, but true death of the person simply does not exist for the believer. To die is to be in the presence of the Lord. This is what Paul's talking about. This is the identification he's making. For this we declare by a word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, or in other words, people who have died. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. What Paul's trying to paint the picture of here is that when Jesus comes the second time, everybody's going to know he came. The first time in a manger, what we celebrate at Christmas, nobody knew he came to the planet. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born into absolute obscurity and lived that way for years. The second time Christ returns, he's going to come with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, and that is going to cause the dead in Christ to rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here's the promise, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, I just painted three scenarios on purpose. The manger, the day of Pentecost, and the second coming of the Lord. What do they all have in common? Because of a manger, we have light. We have salvation. Because of Calvary, light defeated the darkness. Because of Pentecost, the light dwells inside of us. And because of His second coming and the consummation of His kingdom, we will be with Him forever and we will rule and reign, him, reign with Him forever. For the child of God, it only gets better from here. I don't care what happens politically. I don't ha care what happens in the context of culture. For the people of God, it only gets better from here. It starts in a manger. It moves through Calvary, it moves through Pentecost, and it finds its consummation in the great day of the Lord when Christ returns. Christ's first coming, Christ's second coming. I mention this a lot, but I want us to understand and think in biblical categories. It's so important that we're Bible people. What does it mean to live in the last days? Well, you don't know that you're living in the last days because of what the newspapers say. Nothing to do with it. You know you were in the last days because you were living in the time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews uses this language in terms of the last days. Peter uses this language in his epistles in terms of what the last days are. The last days are the times of Jesus Christ between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews said, in times past, God spoke to you through prophets, speaking of the, of the Old Testament. He says, but in these last days, He spoke to us through His Son. We are in the end of the age because we live between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. When the day is dark with despair, 
Jesus Christ is light and He is God with us. When darkness settles over your soul, and it will settle over every single one of our souls, no one, I don't care how close you walk with God, no one is immune to the darkness that comes over our life. It hap real life happens to everybody. He is with you. God is with us. When sin rears its ugly head and it spews darkness all over your life, God is with you to restore you and to help you. Because of a manger, we have light. Because of Calvary, we have victory. Because of Pentecost, the light is in us. And because of His second coming, we will rule and reign with Him forever. God came to be with us so that God could be for us. When at the end of that beautiful, majestic chapter of Romans 8, I love Romans 8, Paul asked the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, God being for you is not just that God is on your side. This picture is not like you're out there playing ball in a field and God's on the sideline cheering you on. That's not like God's not your fan. That's not what that means. That's it's a really bad understanding or oversimplification of what it means for God to be for us. Before God was for you, he was against you because you were a sinner. Sin is so infinitely offensive to an infinitely holy God that just one sin deserves the full brunt of God's wrath. People ask the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? That's simply the wrong question. The question is, how could a holy God not judge sin? We live in a world full of sin. We have sinful natures. It's just second nature to us to, to know sin. But God is not sin. God is holy. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely pure. And my one little sin offends the holiness of God. And I justly deserve the full brunt of God's wrath. But because of the gospel, because of the good news of Jesus Christ, God with us, the manger, Calvary, because of this, Jesus Christ dying in my place for my sin, God is no longer against me. He's now for me. The gospel is what pivots God being against me. And it changes God to be in my favor. We all stand in the courtroom of eternity with God on our side because He is both our advocate and our judge. We stand in the courtroom. I don't know how many of you all have ever stood in a courtroom. I've been fortunate to only have to do it once for something very, very minor. Um, and I, I was down at the clerk's office. I was a teenager and I was and my mother is here and she'll appreciate this. She may or may not remember it. I was a teenager and I had received a, a ticket and it was a pretty bad ticket and uh, so I decided I wanted court supervision and in those days you had to pay a lot extra for court supervision and so I had asked for it but when I went to the courthouse to get it I didn't have enough money for court supervision it was very expensive so <clears throat> I remember down at the clerk's office uh, getting ready to go in there and, and tell them I changed my mind the clerk said, oh, she said, the regular judge is on vacation this week. It's, it's right before Christmas, like the week before Christmas. She said, uh, that judge that's, that's kind of filling in, she said, he's tough. I'm going to give you a heads up. He's, he's not easy. I said, ah, you know, it's, it's insurance ticket and speeding ticket and whatever. I said, it's fine. 
So I walked in the courtroom and they called my name and I was so nervous. And I went up there and I said, Your Honor, um, I know I asked for court supervision, but I don't have enough money for it. I said, uh, I just want to pay my regular ticket and be on my way. He said, son, you asked for court supervision and you're going to pay for court supervision or you can spend Christmas in jail. And so I did what everybody would have done. I went out days before cell phones. I went out to the pay phone and called my mother and said, uh, I don't want to spend Christmas in jail. And about an hour later, there were people showing up with money uh, for court supervision. Uh, it's the only time I've ever stood in court, but I know it was it was nerve-wracking just to be in there for something so minor. But we all stand in the courtroom guilty of the crime of sin, which is worthy of the death penalty. And God is the judge, and He's standing there. And this is what the gospel is. The judge of the universe who is going to rightly judge my sin, because every sin has to be reconciled. God keeps perfect books. Every sin will be reconciled with punishment, either through hell or through Christ bearing my sin upon His body, my sin, His body on Calvary. And so here God is the judge, but He stands up and He steps down, He takes off His robe and He comes down, He stands next to me, and now through the person of Jesus Christ, He is now my defense attorney. This is what James says, we have an advocate, we have a defense attorney. And my defense attorney says, I'll pay it. I'll pay the price. I'll take the penalty of his sin. That's exactly what happens with the gospel. I'm not just inserting this law court language because I think it's a good analogy. The Apostle Paul, that's all he uses to talk about the gospel and justification. Everything that he talks about in Romans is couched in language. It has to do with the court system. It's all what we would call forensic, which just means it has to do with the legal system. Paul describes all the gospel in Romans through law court language that we are justified, that God is now for me. He was against me. He was my judge, and now God is for me. Paul said, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Read Romans 3 and read Romans 8 and answer the question, Who killed Jesus? And the answer is God. He gave up His own Son for my sin. He who did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The question is often asked, what is Jesus doing right now? Romans 8 the book of Hebrews, together we know that Christ is interceding for us right now. This is what Christ does, is intercede for His people. That's the gospel. The whole point, as I close, the whole point of Emmanuel, God with us. And what I really hope you see this morning is how this the story of redemption, that that's what the Bible is. The Bible is a grand story of God's creation, the fall of man through sin, and the restoration of all of creation that finds its, its end someday with the return of Jesus Christ where we will live with Him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. That is the whole point of Isaiah 7. It's the point of Matthew 1. It's the point of Luke 2. 
Emmanuel, God is with us. And if God is with us, the story of the gospel is, He's not just with us, He is for us. Every accusation lobbed against you in the courtroom of eternity. We talk about accusations lobbed against people uh, in this life. People will say things about you, or you know, you'll hear something, an accusation that's lobbed against you. And those hurt, but those are minor compared to the accusations that are lobbed against us in the courtroom of eternity, namely that I am a sinner. All of that is met with a resounding not guilty from the judge of the universe, all because God is with us and because God is for us. Romans 8, I said earlier, Paul used this courtroom language, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. The lack of condemnation, please understand this, this is so important. The lack of condemnation is not an emotional state. Say, oh, I feel condemned. Doesn't matter how you feel. Your emotions have nothing to do with it. Your emotions are a very poor indicator and barometer of where you are with God. There are some days you feel like, God's for me. I can do this. And other days you're like, man, I don't even know if I'm saved. All of that has to go out the window. Your emotions are not a good indicator of your status in Jesus Christ. Condemnation is a legal status. The lack of condemnation is not an emotional state. It is a legal gospel Bible fact. You have been declared innocent by God based upon Christ's finished work of Calvary. And I thank God for that. I thank God that every day I can get up and say, and I'm not, this is not a license to sin. Paul has to cover that in, in Romans. You know, we're Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. You know, this is not a license to sin. This is just the reality of my salvation. I have been declared innocent by God based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If God is for me, who can be against me? That's really the story of Christmas. Well, you and I have no hope. You and I have absolutely no hope in this world or in the age to come without the gospel. The gospel, you know, one of the things we said when we, we started this here, uh, our church plant a while back, is that we want to be gospel-centered, gospel-driven, gospel-focused. There's a lot of other things on the outside that bring in, but on the center is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. People need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I am a sinner. I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. I am not yet perfect. I don't have a glorified body. We all still battle desires and drives and emotions and other things and imperfections and personality defects and all of those things that just everybody's going to deal with. Some, some deal with them more discreetly. Other ones deal with them in public. But everybody deals with something. Everybody has their own battle. And all of this leaves us without hope if it wasn't for the person of Jesus Christ. But I hope this Christmas season, as we celebrate Christmas, as we exchange gifts and have the Christmas trees and the lights and all of the pageantry that we do at Christmas and all of that that I love, I'm for it and I enjoy those things. But I hope in all the midst of that, we remember that it is all about Jesus and it's all about the good news of what God did for us. Emmanuel, God with us. Stand with me this morning offer a word of prayer for us in dismissal.
Lord, I've brought to you this morning a dedicated heart and a mind toward you to be able to preach the gospel to these that are here this morning, to show the redemptive story of what you did for us on Calvary, a story that starts in a manger that was prophesied hundreds and even thousands of years ago that, Lord, you've always had a plan. You've never needed a backup, but that throughout history, Lord, you've always had Jesus Christ in mind as our Savior. And now on this side of Calvary and on this side of the manger as we celebrate days like Christmas and Easter, Lord, we do it as an act of worship. We live in this cycle. We live in this calendar, Lord, to every year to honor and worship you for what you've done for us. But Lord, we, we pray that we wouldn't just reserve that gratefulness for a season or one time of the year, but that Lord, every day throughout our lives, that we would be mindful of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, that we want to offer our lives as living sacrifices, that that is the way that we worship, that is our acceptable worship. Not just worshiping when we come together here, but Lord, everything that we do in our relationships and in our career and in our dealing with people and in our finances and just every part of life, Lord, that we would be worshipers of you, that we would submit our entire lives as an act of worship. And Lord, that our goal today would be that we would be worshipers and that we would be disciples of Jesus Christ. That is our prayer today. We ask you, Lord, we know we can't do it without you, but through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to lead lives that would make much of you in this world. Help us to be a light and a witness into a very dark world today. I pray that you would order our steps, that you would lead us and guide us according to your will and your word and your purpose throughout this next week. I pray, Lord, that in this Christmas season that you would be with us, that you would be in relationships and homes, Lord, that you would bless and guide, Lord, that we would live before you humbly and faithfully. And we ask this today in the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. God bless you this morning.